counting down to our 500th episode. We are 10 episodes away, 500 minus 10. That makes this episode 490 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. Now, the music that you're hearing right now comes from the band The Spiratones. They're based out of the UK. You can find them at thespiratones.bandcamp.com. Check out their album, Sun Worshipper. The first song on that album is Bustin', and that's what you're hearing right now. Now, of course, they gave us permission to play their music here on the show. This is from their debut album, and I'm really excited to play their music. I have some other information about them coming up later in this episode. And of course, you're going to hear Bustin at the very end of this episode in its entirety. So again, thank you to the band, the Spiratones, for letting us play their music. I love this stuff. I love the current instrumental surf music scene. With a touch of rockabilly and everything else, I just dig it, man. And I love the music that we play here almost as much as I love classic monster movies and specifically talking about classic and and let's face it sometimes not so classic monster movies with my friends fellow podcasters fellow monster kids fellow creators in this case we have taylor gentry he's going to be on the show this week when we talk about a bela lugosi film that has had a couple of different titles over the years but i think the title that most people know it as is my son the vampire he and i recorded this episode earlier this month you're going to hear it later on in this episode first of course we have kenny's look at famous monsters of film land and because i can't get enough kaiju and tokusatsu in my life we've got mark matsky's beta capsule reviews which i adore i love what kenny does and i love the feedback we have some listener feedback that we're going to go over later on in this episode as well we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming saturday movie stream at the monster kid movie club and we even have a press release from my friends at the hp lovecraft film festival that i'm going to have the monsters in the machine read to you guys and gals in fact why don't we have them read it right now the hp lovecraft film festival is streaming all over the world this october 1st to 4th is the 25th anniversary of the hp lovecraft film festival and this year the celebration of independent cosmic horror cinema will be served directly to your living room. Fans in the U.S. can get streaming passes, both through the festival's Kickstarter campaign and through the Hollywood Theater website. However, fans outside the U.S. can only get streaming passes through the Kickstarter campaign which ends on September 25th. This year's virtual guests of honor are Barbara Crampton, star of Reanimator Reborn and From Beyond, and award-winning author Victor Laval of The Changeling. Festival programming features new independent feature and short films in the cosmic horror and weird tale tradition, plus live and interactive events, Q&As, presentations, and panel discussions that make this much more than just watching movies at home. Festival directors Brian and Gwen Callahan are looking forward to celebrating this milestone with their festival family even if it's in virtual space, but in light of the pandemic, they firmly believe moving to a streaming format is the safest and best course of action. We knew we didn't want to cancel the festival outright. It's something we all look forward to every year, and maintaining some sense of normalcy is extra important," said Gwen Callahan. Things keep getting weirder and we're all isolated here in the US, so we think the right thing to do is to bring the right kind of weird directly into your home. The HP Lovecraft Film Festival stands with the Black Lives Matter movement. Lovecraft was a pulp author during the 1920s and 1930s, and is one of the most influential horror writers of the modern era. 
Like many American historical figures, he is problematic due to his racist personal beliefs. The festival believes in celebrating his substantial influence on art, music, film, and literature, while acknowledging but firmly rejecting his racist views. BHP Lovecraft Film Festival's mission has always been to encourage and showcase new voices that expand on the cosmic horror genre. Featuring over 60 films from 20 countries with filmmakers and panelists of diverse ethnicities, gender identities, and sexualities, an integral part of the festival's programming is highlighting the amazing breadth of modern cosmic horror. Streaming festival packages are available now through Kickstarter. I will make sure there's a link in the show notes so people can find it, but you can also just go look for it yourself by going to kickstarter.com, look up HPLFFPDX. That's what they put their Kickstarter campaigns under, and that's how you're going to find a way for you to contribute to the 25th HP Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con. As disappointed as I am that it's not going to happen physically, that I'm not going to spend three days running myself ragged at the Hollywood Theater and hanging out with my friends, some of which I only see at the Lovecraft Film Festival, I am really looking forward to this year's event because it's going to be virtual. You know what that means? It means that I could sit at home watch the movies and not have to worry about wearing pants it's going to be a really good time i'm looking forward to it again i'll make sure there's a link in the show notes the kickstarter ends in just a couple of days so if you want to get in on any of the cool rewards or if you're an international lovecraft enthusiast and want to be able to stream the movies to your location this is the only way to do it Otherwise, you'll go to the Hollywood Theater's website to buy your ticket and stream. But if you go to the Kickstarter, there are a number of really cool rewards, shirts, a copy of this year's Daily Lurker newspaper, which is much more than just a schedule of the events at the festival. It actually has stories, a lot of them written by people you may have heard here on the show, that have to do with Lovecraftian topics. There might be an obituary or two as well for some of the people that we've lost over the past year. And then, yeah, the schedule's there too with a synopsis of all the films, all the short films, and an announcement about whatever panels and presentations there are going to be. Now, I will tell you, there aren't going to be nearly as many panels and presentations and author readings this year as there normally are. And that's just because we don't want to overwhelm the Hollywood theater's servers, you know? They're the ones running the stream, so you know we have to kind of be careful there. But there will be some. The schedule's not been announced yet, though, but I'm sure it'll be mentioned on the Kickstarter page. Even after the campaign ends, they are really good about making sure everybody is in the loop and updated about what's going on through their Kickstarter. Of course, you can also just follow along at their website, which is hplfilmfestival.com. Again, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. If you do go support them through the Kickstarter, or if you check them out, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. We are a huge supporter of them. They have supported us over the years, and we just want to make sure that they know that Monster Kid Radio loves the Lovecraft Film Festival. Okay, so we got through that. I got the monsters in the machine up and running. Let's keep them up and running, and we'll slide into listener feedback right after this. has risen from the grave. Boy, does he give a hickey. For years I have searched for a unique way whereby a motion picture audience 
can actually decide the climax of a picture. I have found such a way. My latest picture, Mr. Sodonicus, offers something no audience has ever had before. The power to determine the fate of a character on the screen. The power to punish. In ancient Rome, spectators could decree life or death to a gladiator by indicating thumbs up or thumbs down. During the French Revolution, the mobs could condemn a man by merely shouting to the guillotine. In the early West, vigilantes took the law into their own hands. Today, for the first time, the awful power to punish will be yours. After you see the evil events that made Mr. Sardonicus what he was, you will decide what should be done to him. You will now see some scenes from the picture. The face of Mr. Sardonicus will not be shown because I realize that some people in this audience might be adversely affected by it. Those of you who come to see Mr. Sardonicus will understand why. Mr. Sardonicus. What makes his name strike terror? Sardonicus? Why were you frightened? Uh, sir, you would not understand. You are young. You do not yet have daughters. Why does his wife live in abject fear? If you do not heal him, he will punish me. Surely he wouldn't beat you. His cleverness knows a more hideous torture. What strange attraction did young women have for him? What secrets are hidden behind his doors? Mr. Sardonicus. His deeds formed a fabric of nightmares. His face, the face of Sardonicus, can be described only in the eyes of its beholders. Mr. Sardonicus, in spite of all his cruelties, some people will think he deserves mercy. Others will feel that no punishment could be too severe. When you come to see Mr. Sardonicus, you will receive a, a ballad like this. At a certain point in the picture, you will vote thumbs up or thumbs down. His punishment will depend on the result of your vote. What number is this? What am I calling? We're in the feedback section of the show. We have some emails that came in since the last episode. Let's go ahead and roll into them. Hey, Monster in the Machine, do your job. Hi, Derek. I was really excited to hear Monster Kid Radio might be doing a Scooby-Doo episode. I bought the original series for my young nephew a couple of years ago, and it has really got him interested in ghosts and monsters. When you were wondering about the best approach to covering the series, I thought of your Star Trek episode, number 282. Top 3 Star Trek Monsters. 
I think this kind of take would work well with the Scooby-Doo series. Best wishes. Nicholas. Nicholas, you know, that's not a bad idea just to kind of do an overview the way we did that Star Trek episode. Man, has it been over 200 episodes since we did that Star Trek episode? Has it really been over 200 episodes since we've talked about Star Trek here on the show? I really want to do more Star Trek here as well. You know, I really wanted to do so much this year in 2020 on the podcast, but, you know, with everything that came up and, I, you know, world problems with the corona apocalypse and COVID-19, local problems with the fires, you know, that have recently happened and then the protests that have been happening in downtown Portland pretty much every day. That's probably not really a problem, but when the anarchists get involved, well, you know, they're not really part of it. But anyway, and then personal changes going on in my life with the divorce, 2020 just did not deliver the way that I wanted it to. I go back and I watch the video that I posted when I announced the Patreon campaign being changed up. And, uh, man, I was so full of hope at that point. <laughs> anyway, that's not what you wrote in about. You wrote in about Scooby-Doo. The only concern that I have, if we did like a top three monsters of Scooby-Doo is how many of them really were monsters? So many of them is just some real estate dude in a mask trying to scare somebody away from some property, right? Anyway, <laughs> I, I don't know what we're going to do yet, but I will keep that in mind. I did have somebody suggest that I do Scoob Timber, but we're already almost through September, so it's a little late for that. But maybe next year we can do Scoob Timber and do nothing but Scooby-Doo during September. I, I don't know. I did kind of like the theme month, so... We'll see. I appreciate you writing in, though. And listeners, if you have any thoughts about how we do Scooby-Doo here on the show, let me know. Speaking of our theme months, we have an email where somebody talks about those and a few other things. Hey there. I found the show after binge listening to Chris and Cindy Franklin's House of Frankenstein podcast. I'm a lifelong comics fan, but I'm happy to hop the fence into the monster kid backyard. Let's face it, without the monster and horror comics of the 1950s, there wouldn't have been a Marvel comics in the 1960s. There may not have even been a comics industry left at all for that matter. I really enjoy the format of the show. It's as like getting a guided tour though the best, and worst, the genre has to offer. The themed months are also a treat with Lucha de Mayo and Dan Sember being early favorites. I mean, who doesn't love Dan Curtis? I enjoyed your coverage of Godzilla vs. Megalon. Believe it or not I had sat down this week to watch it before you announced your coverage. It was a rare treat to be ahead of the game for once. It's a fun movie and I haven't seen it since maybe 1979. The local Channel 9 in New York would do week-long blocks of Godzilla and Planet of the Apes movies as part of their 4.30 movie programming. I'm sure some monster kids remember that fondly. I wish more was done with Jet Jaguar but I guess he was too similar to Ultraman. Still they left that theme song on the table. Too bad. Keep up the great work and I'll see you all on the Twitch stream. From Paul B. What I love is that when this email came in, the subject heading was Monster Kid Radio. Punch, punch, punch. That was awesome. So, uh, the House of Frankenstein podcast, Chris and Cindy are awesome. I'm so glad that you decided to check us out after they gave us a shout out. I really appreciate it. Horror comics of the 50s. Horror comics in general have influenced so much of monster movies in general, you know? When you think about the Amicus films, the anthology horror films, without the comics, would we even have that? Would we have Amicus as it was then? I, I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, as far as comic books go, I do have some things in the works for my Comicstalgia YouTube channel. I've really kind of slowed down on production on that because... 
actually, it's probably more fair to say I've slowed down on post-production on that because I've got a handful of episodes for various things that I want to release, but they're not quite where I want them to be in terms of editing and pacing. I guess I just want things to be perfect. Now that I said that, I may have just set myself up for some expectations uh, that you might have with the videos. I, I don't know. I may just kind of deal with what I have and put them out. We'll see. But stay tuned to the Comic Stalgia YouTube channel for some comic book stuff, especially uh, on the Marvel front, just because that's kind of how I came up through comics. I appreciate the comments and the compliments about the show. The theme months are so much fun to do. Lucha de Mayo is a blast. Dan Zember is coming up. Dan Zember is when we celebrate the cinema and television of Dan Curtis. And that's happening in December, which is in just a couple of months. Regarding Godzilla versus Megalon, you know, that movie, I love it so much. <laughs> I would have loved to seen a week-long series of Godzilla movies and Planet of the Apes films. I love the Planet of the Apes movies. You know, if you just discovered the show, they weren't all done one right after the other. Over the years, Scott Morris and I sat down and did the Planet of the Apes movies. And believe it or not, I'd never seen them before we started talking about them here on the show. Scott was a lifelong fan, and he was my guide through the Planet of the Apes universe. So much fun and such great cinema. You also mentioned the Twitch stream, and we'll talk about the Twitch stream later in the show. Again, thanks for writing in, man. Hi, Derek. I enjoyed the Megalon episode of MKR. My son and I have become serious kaiju fans in the past year or two. This is one of our favorite films as well. When I was visiting Ron Adams last month, he turned me on to Ultra Q, and we've watched that Blu-ray set recently. I'm curious to hear what comments what will be on the short reviews of some of the episodes that are just plain weird, the one with the turtle and dream sequences with the strange little girl, that's some strange stuff. I'm curious if there's any info on why some episodes of Ultra Q did not feature the trio of lead actors. Looking forward to whatever you've got in store for upcoming shows. From Kevin S. This Kevin that sent this email in, this is the Kevin that helps out at Monster Bash. If you've ever been to Monster Bash, you've seen Kevin. He's wearing an orange shirt because he's one of the people that help out. He was on my Monster Bash coverage last year, and I am talking to him about getting him back on the show for some other things. He's also a great musician and just, he's a cool guy. And I'm glad that he enjoyed the episode. I, I'm not saying he's a cool guy because he enjoyed the episode. I'm just saying he was a cool guy. Anyway, <laughs> I'm really glad that you've become kaiju fans. There is such a world of monster movies once you start looking at what Japan was throwing out into the world. I'm still discovering so much of it. In fact, I was just talking on the Tuesday sci-fi stream that we host that there is a series, a trilogy of yokai films that came out from Daiei Studios in the 60s. Daiei is the company that did Gamera. I've never seen any of them, and I would love to talk about them here on the show. And it's kind of relevant because there is now talk of another yokai film starting to go into the works or coming out here in the near future, uh, a more modern film. So, you know, yokai, we should get into some yokai. Can we have a yokai kid radio episode maybe? That might be kind of fun. Ultra Q is so cool. Listeners, if you haven't seen Ultra Q, one, you're not paying attention to Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule reviews, because you know, if you're listening to those and don't feel inspired to check out Ultra Q, I, I don't know what you're listening to. But beyond that, Ultra Q is just cool. It's like Twilight Zone, X-Files, but through a tokusatsu of the 60s lens. It's so awesome. I don't know why, though, some of the episodes are kind of standalones, whereas others feature this team uh, of this 
returning cast. I'm not really sure what the decision was there. As much as I love Ultra Q and Ultraman and all that, I'm still learning about the hows and the whys what the decisions were going into a lot of the production here. I just, I don't know them as well as I know the universals, the hammers and all the others. And I think part of it is because I'm a latecomer to this particular style of cinema and television, but also a lot of the material out there and it's getting better now, but a lot of the material out there, it's in Japanese and your humble podcaster doesn't read or speak Japanese. So I don't really uh, have a way to consume uh, the information that's out there about these movies and TV programs. It's getting more and more easy to get access to some of it. Some of the work that's done by people like August Ragone and, or I said August Ragone, I, I can never keep it straight, but some of the work of people like that or Kyle over at the Kaiju cast when that was up and running, tons of information out there. But I really need to learn Japanese so that I could, you know, understand Godzilla movies better because that's what I should be doing with my time. Kevin, thanks for writing in, man. Hey, Derek. I just wanted to shoot you some quick feedback on the May show. Having not seen it, I took your advice and stopped listening to it prior to your reveal of the ending. I found it on YouTube and watched with untainted eyes. You and Jonathan are correct. This is an eerie, atmospheric movie. Very weird fiction vibe as you both commented. It reminds me of an extended thriller episode. Menzies does a good job of setting the main relationships in Act 1. We feel we know Gerald and Kitty. We feel their excitement about getting married. The relationship between Kitty and Edith and Gerald and Edith are well realized. The cast is solid. As Jonathan said, these are pros and they sell their characters well. There's mystery around Gerald and his family. Why has he suddenly changed? The cast and director do an excellent job building this mystery through four-fifths of the movie. I'll not spoil the ending. I'll only say that I was surprised at it and how it was handled. Some of your and Jonathan's suggestions of how it could have been were fantastic and I would have loved to see any of them. Jonathan is a great guest and it was fun chatting with him during his movies on the previous Monster Kid Movie Club. Thanks for all you do for us Monster Kids. Your friend, Tom G. Tom is from the Go Forth and Game podcast and here's a spoiler. Tom and I are talking about getting me on his podcast. I'm going to record with him sometime next month. I'll let you know more as soon as I know more. I'm really glad you liked The Maze. I'm glad you checked it out before you got to the end of that episode because the end we do kind of spoil the whole thing. And, and it sounds like you're in agreement with me and Jonathan regarding the ending of the film. It just could have been stronger. That said, all the buildup, the mood, the atmosphere, all of that, totally worth it. And almost makes up for that ending that could have been stronger. Jonathan's a great guy. I really appreciated him taking the time to be on the show. He's busy with his own podcast, the X meets Y podcast and making those movies and writing stories and getting them published and all that. He's just a busy guy. So I appreciate him taking the time to be on the show. And Tom, I appreciate you taking the time to write in to the show. You can call and leave a voicemail for monster kid radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. 
Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. The artist. The poet. The figure model who loves to show it. Do you suppose he could be physically attracted to her? No, man, he ain't the type. He don't get enough vitamin E. All these are beat. All these you'll meet in a bucket of blood. Let us make the scene. Crazy. Come, enjoy yourself. <laughs> Where the hilarious enjoy the horrifying in a bucket of blood. Now you're gonna shoot me, don't shoot! Come to the land of living dreams. Where realists dream of the unreal. Walter, you've done something to me. Something deep down inside of my prana. Oh, Walter, I want to be with you. You're creative. Beatniks at their bawdiest. The creative urge at its most primitive. I'm deeply moved. And I shall compose a poem. Love is art. Art is love. It's the weirdest and the wildest. I don't want to make statues anymore. I want to get married to you. See the top double thrill, double chill motion picture program of the year. Curse of the Werewolf. In color, the harrowing story of the legendary half-man, half-wolf. His evil beast blood demanded he kill, kill, kill. Plus, the shadow of the cat, a shocking adventure into murder and psychotic fear. Two terrifying hits together. Don't miss them. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. You'd be hard-pressed to come up with a more appropriate title for Episode 4 of Ultra Q than the one it was given. Mammoth Flower first aired on the Tokyo Broadcasting Station January 23, 1966. In a sense, Mammoth Flower could be thought of as the pilot episode of Ultra Q, as it was the first to be written and filmed. The story begins in gripping fashion, with a policeman on rounds falling victim to an earthquake, although the image that plays under the opening credits suggests that the cause may not simply be tectonic. 
The next morning, June and Ipe drop by the Daily News building where they meet Yuriko and discover her workplace has suffered severe damage. And that's just the beginning. Huge vines burst through the walls of the subway station and begin draining people of blood through their thorns. The mammoth flower grows so rapidly that it bursts through the roof of an office building and blooms, releasing toxic pollen into the air. Dr. Ichinotani's colleague, Dr. Genda, has serious misgivings about destroying the pernicious plant. Will his refusal to help the disaster response doom Tokyo? Mammoth Flower, an episode in which Tsuburaya's special effects genius is on full display, was conceived when the working title of the series was still Unbalanced, and a feeling of unease permeates the script. No definitive cause for the flower's appearance is identified, meaning it could reappear again at any time. In the world of Ultra Q, things are just off. In 2020, that's almost a little too relatable. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. An awesome machine unleashed with a deadly task. Godzilla, the only hope for Earth's survival. Godzilla versus the Bionic Monster. Godzilla strives to win supremacy in a fight to the end. Will Godzilla triumph? The Earth survive? Godzilla versus the Bionic Monster, an Earth-shaking movie. Rated G. This is Vincent Price. I've been involved in many blood-chilling films like The House of Wax and The Fly, but never have I played in a more terrifying shocker than my new picture, The House on Haunted Hill. It's a story guaranteed to make you shudder with fright. See the house on Haunted Hill, if you dare. Discover Planet of the Apes. A civilization where humans run wild in the jungles, and the superior beings are apes. Tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disposition. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation, to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Then a kind of living death. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's movie was featured in Famous Monsters 41 from November of 1966 with a two-page, six-photo article. It's short, so let's take a look at what it says. Spoiler alert! Bela Lugosi in Vampire Over London. See Bela Lugosi as My Son the Vampire. Be there and beware when Mother Riley meets the vampire. Every Lugosi fan has heard of these films and wanted to see them. Actually, they are all the same picture, just different titles. Lucky British fans of Bella got to see his mother Riley meets the vampire way back in 1951. Vampire Over London was the name by which the pick was going to be released in the USA in 1953, but somehow it never came to pass. 
Finally, 10 years later, in 1963, it did have a limited showing in America under the title of My Son the Vampire. Here at last is the story. A mysterious dark figure arrives in England. This sinister visitor is known as the Vampire. This transplanted Transylvanian is none other than Bela Lugosi. He has come to complete experiments in a mad bid to outdo Fu Manchu, Roxor, Dr. No, and all the other baddies who seek to gain control of the world. To achieve his unholy ambition, the vampire needs the help of a radar-controlled invention. It is a robot in half-human form. It is secretly shipped to him from an unknown port. But by mistake, the metal servant is delivered to a kooky old woman known as Mother Riley. Through remote control, the would-be ruler of the world contacts his metal man and learns where it is. He orders it to move itself to his house and to kidnap Mother Riley while it's at it. Fearing she may know too much, the vampire keeps Mother Riley captive. But the nutty Mrs. Riley doesn't know enough. She turns amateur detective in order to find out the hidden secrets of the vampire. When Lugosi leaves for the dockyards to visit a ship bearing a valuable chart he wants, Mother Riley bursts into a whirlwind of action in an all-out effort to wreck the vampire's plans. Through methods both unusual and hilarious, the old lady ruins the plot of the vampire and puts an end to his sinister threat of worldwide conquest. Lugosi defeated by an old woman? Most fantastic film we ever heard of. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula. The original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, dearie? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms, and he made me drink. Hey, kids, Woo! looky what I got for you. A free Rasputin beard as you enter the theater to shiver at the greatest double scare pair anywhere. Rasputin the Mad Monk <laughs> and the Reptile, both in color from 20th Century Fox. Look out, Street, here they come.
I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Listeners, I've been trying to get this guy on the show for a while, and a lot of times it's a matter of me just getting overwhelmed and not remembering that I need to put him on the calendar and that sort of thing. So before we start anything, I want to thank Taylor Gentry for being so patient with me on getting him here on the show. How's it going, man? Man, I mean this with all sincerity and deep down in my heart. I feel like being on this show tonight, I have finally arrived. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I do, man. And hey, don't worry about it. Like, I knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of when. And honestly, I think things kind of worked out perfectly. So I'm super happy to be here. And I'm just glad that I'm on Monster Kid Radio. I've been a listener for years. So this is a huge honor. Right on. Well, I know that I've done like one, I think I did one bit for one of your programs at one point. So I'm glad to finally to be able to return the favor by having you on my show. Uh, We'll talk about something a little bit more... uh, meaty than Manos the Hands of Fate, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I did when, when I was on your show briefly. But. I do love that movie, unironically. So. Yeah, me, me too. Me too. <laughs> well, there is a Manos project in the works that'll probably uh, see the light of day next year. So listeners, stay tuned for that. Awesome. Uh, longtime listeners might know what I'm talking about, but mm-hmm. yeah, anyway, that's a whole different thing. You, Taylor, what are you up to, man? What are things looking like for you these days with Count Drahoon and everything else? My show is called Count Drahoon's Feature of Fright. It's a podcast. It's a radio theater kind of podcast. So we usually do the show twice a month. It's a story told through actors and sound effects, and they're mostly horror stories, although we... We do a lot of horror comedy. We like to keep things kind of lighthearted and goofy, but sometimes we do like darker, straight horror stuff. We've pre-recorded them in the past, uh, but we've also been doing them live uh, over the past year and a half or so. We were seeing amazing crowds in the beginning of this year. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, the pandemic happened and that kind of put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, on that, uh, at least for a while, because, you know, Vampires always rise from the dead. We all know this. And, <laughs> and so I was just kind of working on ways to keep creating and to stay in the public eye, as it were. And I kept doing uh, Monday night readings, which, you know, every Monday night on my uh, Facebook page, I, uh, I read a classic horror story. Right now, we're actually in the middle of Dracula, believe it or not. And then I just decided the best thing to do was just to keep doing the radio theater aspect, but just sort of pre-record it. So what we've done is we have filmed uh, our radio plays. And of course, we do it uh, on set. And the set varies. Like we've shot in the den of somebody's house. We went all the way down to South Pittsburgh uh, a couple of weekends ago to film in a, uh, a Victorian house that was built in the 1880s. It was actually the first house built in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, which is it's pretty cool. Um, and we basically just sort of space out the microphones and we perform uh, whatever story that we've got on our scripts. We perform it right there. Uh, so we have the actors reading the lines and then uh, I add the uh, sound effects in post. 
Uh, I say all that to say, kind of on a whim, I submitted the filmed stuff that we've been doing to uh, Lloyd Kaufman and Troma Entertainment because they actually have a, a live streaming service called Troma Now. And uh, I sent them the first episode. And I'll be honest, I kind of wasn't expecting much because Troma, you know, in case you're not familiar with Troma, they do some pretty edgy stuff. If you've ever seen Toxic Avenger or Poultry Geist or uh, any of their uh, cult classics. And my stuff is kind of wholesome. Like, I, I think it's safe to say that you could let your five-year-old listen to an episode of Count Dragoon's Feature of Fright and it not really be that big of a deal. But they watched it, they liked it, and they decided to feature our new cycle of shows on Troma Now. So I'm super excited about it. It's kind of a dream come true in a way. That's very cool. We had Lloyd Kaufman on as a guest last year because uh, I also interview, well, excuse me, The Count interviews uh, guests who have some sort of horror-related project. Uh, like you mentioned, Derek, uh, you were on the show. Uh, the Count interviewed you a couple years ago. And then uh, we actually interviewed uh, Lloyd Kaufman, and we just this past April, we interviewed Joe Bob Briggs. A little connection there, Mr. Silver Bolo winner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say that, but well, I'm, yeah, I'm also not going to say that I'm sitting here fingering it or anything. I'm just, you know. I'm just <laughs> but that was so cool. Like, I watched that, and I'm just like, holy crap, Derek won! <laughs> I had no, well, and I've relayed this on my YouTube channel that, I had no idea, man. I was just in there minding my own business, and my phone starts blowing up. I'm like, what's going on? I don't well, understand. What are you congratulating me for? <laughs> yeah, I was like, dude, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Um, but yeah, that was pretty amazing. Um, so thank you. Yeah. How do we turn this about me? I mean, we're talking about you. What, what are we doing here? <laughs> well, I just I had to throw that out there because you know that it's you know it's such a small world because like we we kind of have a connection with uh, Joe Bob Riggs. Uh, in a weird way, we kind of have a connect connection with Dr. Gangrene because I, I know uh, Dr. Gangrene's been a guest on the show several times. Mm -hmm. And actually, my cousin Chuck was actually the first director of uh, Dr. Gangrene's like first cycle of shows back in the late 90s. So, oh, OK. Yeah. So you, uh, we've got that just making connections here and there. But yeah, so our show, it's going to be available on Troma Now. It's also going to be available on uh, the MarionCountyMessenger.com, which is a Facebook page. And uh, we're also putting it out on WGNS.com. That's a, a, a radio station that's uh, where I live in uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So that was going to be my next question is how do people see it? So they can go through Troma, uh, but then these other resources as well when we're done recording can you maybe send me some links and i'll make sure there are links in the show notes for people to check this out yes absolutely for sure right on and in case i've just kind of blindsided you with a lot of information you can just follow me on instagram at count uh, we have uh, updates for everything that we're doing now with the stuff with trauma is your entire catalog of video going over to them or do you have some older stuff that people can watch now there's some stuff on youtube that you can check out uh we have some recordings of our live shows uh we actually okay. did uh, a romantic comedy version of herbert west reanimator <laughs> really yes okay it's fitting because we're actually recording this on lovecraft's birthday oh, so awesome okay yeah cool. yeah tell me about this romantic comedy reanimator okay so <laughs> i'm a huge lovecraft fan I also happen to be a fan of the Stuart Gordon uh, film version as well. Uh, but I remember reading Herbert West Reanimator, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed the story. But I was also kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, I've noticed that Lovecraft doesn't, 
and, and maybe I'm wrong because I, maybe I haven't read as much Lovecraft as I thought. He doesn't really add a lot of uh, female characters. And, and please correct me if I'm wrong. It seems to me that in most of Lovecraft stories, the main narrators or the protagonists are men. His style's very different from Edgar Allan Poe. Poe's work seems to me like it, there's a lot more romance in it. And Lovecraft is a little bit drier uh, in that department. So after I got done reading through Reanimator one day, I thought to myself, what if I made the narrator of Reanimator a woman? What if this woman narrator has had a crush on Herbert West for years and has just sort of gushed over him because she thinks he's just so brilliant while at the same time she gets into this weird rabbit hole of depravity and reanimating dead corpses. <laughs> so, so that's kind of how the idea came about. So I wrote a romantic comedy version of Herbert West reanimator. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I, I will just to kind of throw my two cents in. You are absolutely right. Lovecraft did not write women very well. I mean, the one that comes to mind right now, that's Asenith Waithe and, and, and she, Asenith Waithe was not, a good guy. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Lovecraft didn't really do the female thing very well. And yeah, any kind of romantic or romance or anything like that, not there at all. So interesting. And you said this is on YouTube now? Yeah, I'll be sure to send you a link uh, to watch that. I think everyone will appreciate it uh, because we, we took some subtle digs at Lovecraft, uh, some of his, um, shall we say, uh, darker personality traits and Ooh, and everything yeah. it follows the story a little bit more closely than the film. Okay. We used a lot of the same characters. I tried to follow basically the same uh chapter scheme for lack of a better word, so it kind of goes in the right order. I twisted it a little bit cuz I did a lot of flashbacks. You know, obviously I kind of had to change it around because the the narrator and Herbert are more or less a couple, so <laughs> Well, I'm eager to check that out. Thank you. That sounds fascinating. Uh, I love taking different approaches to the Lovecraft material, and this one sounds like one of the more unique ones. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to checking that one out. So please please send me a link. And uh, like I said, listeners, check the links in the show notes. We'll make sure everything's there for you to check out as well. I'm super thrilled. Like I said, congratulations on the deal with Troma. I think that's fantastic. Uh, it'll be nice to kind of see the uh, sensibility that you bring to your love of these things to the trauma audience, since trauma, like you said, isn't necessarily geared toward family entertainment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to put it bluntly, it's just what they do. And that's fine. And they've been incredibly successful at it. They're, if I remember right, they are the longest running successful independent production company uh, in the world at this point. Yeah. They've been around uh, for so long. They know what they're doing. And now that you get to be part of the trauma family, that's fantastic. It is uh, 46 years of disrupting media. Uh, I looked that up earlier. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, once again, congratulations on that and with everything else. What's coming up next for you? Do you have anything in the works you can talk about or want to talk about? Yeah, I'll tell you what. I didn't want to do this, um, for lack of a better word, this reboot. I don't know if you can really call it a reboot, but I, I think you kind of know what I mean. It's just, um, yeah. I guess we're kind of taking the show in a little bit of a different direction in terms of how we're set up. Uh, although we will still be doing the, the audio out on our uh, our audio feed. 
but I'll give you a quick rundown of the first three episodes that we're doing uh, for Count Dragoon's Feature Fright. Okay. Episode one is actually going to be an homage to uh, 70s horror and sci-fi. I've got a spoof of uh, Blackula. Well, I shouldn't say a spoof. It's really an homage, but it's basically uh, the Count and his teenage Frankenstein son, Daryl, retell a story (laughs) of uh, whenever they met a guy uh, in Harlem that was actually trying to help them get to a nightclub that was owned by one of the Count's oldest friends who used to be the fan of the opera, but now he owns a jazz club. And he accidentally uh, gets hit by a car. And in order to save him, uh, the Count kind of reluctantly turns him into a vampire. And the power of being uh, a vampire kind of goes to his head. So Drahoon and Daryl basically just spend the rest of the story trying to chase him down and try to make him come to his senses. Uh, there's a lot of nods to Blackula. There's also some nods to White Zombie. Oh. If you're a fan of Son of Dracula and uh, White Zombie, uh, I named one of the characters uh, Zimba Legendre. So right off the bat, you'll be able to get that. <laughs> nice. Um, and then in the second story, we did a really, a really horrible spoof of uh, Logan's Run, <laughs> where the Count and Daryl are stuck in the future But instead of the whole thing about uh, you having to be thrown in the carousel uh, once you're 30 and then you you get killed, the future is nothing but an endless cycle of reboots and remakes. So Carousel determines which franchises are going to get remade and which ones are going to be lost to time. It's a little, it's a little bit of a satire on the the reboot remake culture that we have. So I, I did that. And then episodes two and three, we are actually doing our rendition of House on Haunted Hill. Oh, wow. Okay. I uh, found out that the original screenplay uh, is in the public domain. So uh, we decided that we wanted to do it, but we wanted to put a little bit of a different spin on it. Uh, we tweaked just a little bit of it because, you know, it's radio and you know, the last 20 minutes of House on Haunted Hill, there's, there's a lot of visual cues. So there's just no way we could have kept it completely intact without it making sense uh, in the medium right. that we do. But every actor, uh, with the exception of the uh, the actor that plays Frederick Lauren, is going to apply their own best celebrity impersonation to the character that they're playing. Okay. And in sort of gimmicky William Castle style uh, we're sort of having a contest where if you can guess all of the celebrity impressions correctly we'll send you a free uh, merch package right on that's coming uh, down the pike and that's why we uh, we went down to south pittsburgh in tennessee to, uh, we found oh, okay. this really nice house uh, it's actually the first house that was built uh, in that town back in 1882 uh, it was this great beautiful victorian house which is Actually, the residence of a fellow horror host named uh, Duke Ralston, uh, he and his friend Neil Prevent, I think his last name is, uh, they host a show called uh, Tennessee Macabre, which is more of a traditional horror host show because they actually show uh, public domain horror films. Okay. He let us come down to film in his home, and uh, we had a really good time. And I'm actually working on editing the, uh, the House on Haunted Hill episodes uh, right now as we speak it sounds like a lot of what you do is really focused on audio or radio like presentation do you have a background in radio or audio production not outside of just the experience i've gained making the show uh, i i have mm-hmm. more of a background in film 
that's kind of where I got started. I made movies uh, as a student. I actually won Best High School Film in 2013 uh, for a, a short film that I did about uh, veterans with PTSD. And Count Drahoon actually started out in uh, movies. Uh, he was in the very first uh, movie that we made called The Monsters of Ansingville, which it was kind of an homage to Abbott and Costello and Frankenstein. And then just from there, the character, I wanted to do much more with him, but I couldn't quite do it with film just because I, I didn't have uh, the budget. And I recognize the irony in that statement because now I'm basically working for trauma. So <laughs> some of the stuff I have no budget. Um, so I don't know why that stopped me. But I decided I, I kind of wanted to get into the podcasting game because – to me, it had the potential to do like basically resurrect the radio genre or the radio medium uh, that we had back in the 30s and 40s. When I was a kid, I had cassettes and CDs of The Shadow and The Green Hornet and a couple of episodes of the Mercury Theater with Orson Welles mm-hmm. and Agnes Moorhead. Oh, nice. It was a double feature. It was The Hitcher and it was um, Sorry, Wrong Number. Agnes Moorhead started in Sorry, Wrong Number, and then Orson Welles did The Hitcher. Those were really cool. But I always I always found that fascinating growing up hearing about the fact that, you know, before we had TV, you, you know, you had to have radio. And, of course, I've listened to Orson Welles' War of Worlds. Sure. And it just – it made me want to jump into that, and I did. Um, and I've been doing Counter Hoon's Feature Fright for about five years now. Uh, we started in March of 2015. It's been an interesting process. Uh, I think the show's grown. Uh, we've learned a lot. Like everything else I've done in my life, I've just basically just sort of jumped into it and asked questions along the way, which is kind of the best way to do it, I think. you know, you, Sure. The best way to learn is just to do it. I'll be honest with you. I'm, if you look at my professional resume and uh, what I went to school for and then what I'm aspiring to be, I'm really all over the place. Your interest then in being a monster, you know, not your interest, but in being a monster kid, did your love for this start with the radio shows and the audio dramas, the radio dramas, or were there movies that you watched growing up? I'm like, how did you come to loving this stuff the way that we do? I ask because you're a little bit younger than me. Mm-hmm. I was in high school in 2000, whatever. Uh-huh. You're a little bit younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just curious. I'm like, what is your journey to being a monster kid like? I feel like Sophia from Gilmore Girls. Picture it, Sicily, 1912. Um, no, it, uh, it actually started around 1997. That was the year. If, uh, I'm sure you might remember, uh, there was, there seemed to be a huge revival in the universal monsters specifically. I believe that was the year that, uh, Turner classic movies ran basically the entire cycle of universal monsters. They had Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman. That was also around the same time that those movies came out on VHS, or like, you know, they re-released it in like a big collection. And then Burger mm-hmm. King also had a line of monster toys. They had Dracula, Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and the Wolfman. And I believe I still have all four of those, by the way. I just remember being a little kid. This was also around the same time that I watched Star Wars. So I saw Darth Vader and was like super impressed with this, this giant of a man wearing a long flowing black cape. It was very awe-inspiring to me as a little kid. And then I just remember seeing the images of Dracula and being like, who is this guy? Like, this is cool. And then, you know, it kind of followed suit with the other monsters as well. I was just fascinated by this dark world. 
and just this realm of possibilities, you know, there's a vampire and a werewolf and a monster and a mummy and a, a gill man. This is just really cool. Like my little five-year-old imagination just couldn't comprehend the awesomeness. And just over the years, specifically Halloween, I just remember I would be exposed to these movies a little by little. So for my fifth or sixth birthday, I got Godzilla on VHS, uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. That was the first Godzilla movie I ever watched, and it was awesome. So I, that it started from there, and then I worked my way into the Hammer films. Uh, I remember watching Christopher Lee's Dracula, thinking he was like the coolest human being ever, besides Peter Cushing, of course, who's, you know, <laughs> we all know he's like the coolest person ever. I also remember thinking to myself, I'm like, hey, so Van Helsing is also the guy from Star Wars? Well, that's cool. So then I went from there, and I remember being maybe six or seven watching The Wolfman for the first time, loving that movie. And then I remember I was watching it with my dad, and the scene came where it was uh, Bella, the fortune teller, basically taking Jenny Williams back and reading her palm. And my dad looked at the screen. He's like, oh, my God, that's Bella Lugosi. I forgot he was in this movie. And I said, who's that? He said, well, that's Dracula. And I remember looking at him like, that's not Dracula, that guy with the mustache and the and the, basically like the Polish <laughs> tunic. Like, that's no, you, you got to be kidding me. But then not too long after that, my mom got me the 1931 uh, film version of Dracula uh, on VHS. I usually I try to stay away from hyperbole. I don't like to be too dramatic outside of you know my my profession, as it were. But that seriously changed my life. I watched that movie. I probably watched that movie a million times just that week alone, to the point oh, wow. to where I was literally letting kids in my second grade class borrow the movie. I made my second grade teacher watch the movie until there was like a consensus that everybody was exposed to Dracula and we all agreed that he was the greatest thing ever. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I'm still really close to my second grade teacher. So uh, she, <laughs> she, told, she tells me all the time, she's like, that was the year where – Although I'm, I really loved having you in my class, I was also simultaneously terrified that I was going to get fired. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so if you're, if you're listening, Yancy, I love you. Thank you for everything. Um, and, of course, you know, my taste of all from there. I watched Dracula. I watched Frankenstein and all of the other Frankenstein films, The Invisible Man. And as I got older, I would watch these movies again and again and again. It also helped me get into other forms of horror. I got into Jalo films. I tried watching other Hammer films that weren't just Dracula films. I've gotten into 50 sci-fi a little bit later, but now I'm, I get on 50 sci-fi kicks now, and they, those are really cool. So that's kind of how it all started. And also around the time that I was getting into monster movies, I think that was also the time that Roger Corman was hosting AMC Monster Fest which that was also really cool too. And that exposed me to a lot of really great films that I still watch every year. Yeah, interesting. Thank you for sharing that, man. Just to show you how much of a Lugosi nerd I, I am, I'm kind of mad at my dad because my dad's in the military, so he travels to Europe a lot. Uh -huh. He was in Hungary uh, about a year ago. And in uh, the capital city of Budapest, there's a place called uh, Hero Park. And in this place, there is a giant statue of Bela Lugosi as Dracula. Oh, wow. And it, there's also a statue of Wad the Impaler. Uh, it's all within the same uh, square. That's on the bucket list, <laughs> is to go to Hero Park. 
<laughs> awesome. And I'm glad you've brought up Lugosi a couple of times because that's what we're going to be talking about today, a Lugosi film. Before we get to that, though, I feel like I don't quite know you well enough yet, Taylor. I think we have to do one more thing so that I can get to know you just a little bit more. Okay. We got to play around to the classic five. The classic five. I am simultaneously super excited and super terrified. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, remember, there are no wrong answers. Listeners, for those of you who are just now joining us, the classic five is a game that we play here on the show and on the weekend streams when we do movie watch parties online. I've got a literal deck of cards here, and each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. We're going to draw five cards. We're going to ask Taylor for his answers. What do you think? You ready to play? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Card number one, right off the top. Who do you prefer, William Castle or Bert I. Gordon? I'm going to have to say William Castle. Yeah? He directly inspired me to do a lot of what I like to call the gimmicks. <laughs> um, okay. But on top of that, like his specifically House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler, I would say those are those would probably be my top 10 favorite horror movies uh, easily, even though I know that some would argue the Tingler may be a little bit more of an unintentional comedy, but I still love it. I'm a huge fan. And even of his movies that he didn't do with Vincent Price, I love, uh, Sardonicus, uh, which I actually, in the Count Whom show, I modeled uh, a character after Sardonicus and 13 ghosts is great too. All right. Well, like I said, no wrong answers, and I love me some good William Castle myself. So, all right. Card number two. Who's your favorite actor to have ever played the Phantom of the Opera? <sighs> okay. So this one's kind of hard. I'm gonna say by default Lon Chaney Sr. But to me, Herbert Lom is a very, very close second. I really enjoy the Hammer version, but I feel like I I have to say Lon Chaney though because. The work that he put into the makeup and the performance, because that stuff hurt. And it took a long time to apply it. And while he's acting in that makeup that was very arduously painful, he gave one of the finest performances of the silent era and, you know, possibly of all time. It's just a great movie, a great accomplishment. But I really do like the, the Hammer version of Phantom of the Opera. I'm a huge fan of that film. Uh, Herbert Lom is a great phantom, but I also feel like we don't get to see much of Herbert Lom in the Hammer version. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give it to Cheney. Right on. I always wished that Lon Cheney Jr. would have played the phantom, and I don't know if it was not in his contract, the studio wasn't down for it or whatever, just, just to see what he would have done, just to kind of have that kind of closure, I guess. Yeah, I think that would have been interesting. I like the Claude Rains version okay. Sure. I remember, it's weird because I went back and forth on it a little bit because when I when I first saw it when I was a kid, I really liked it. But then after a while, I just sort of drifted from it a bit because I really appreciated the, uh, uh, the Lon Chaney version a lot more. But now as I've gotten older, a little bit more mature, I still appreciate it, even though it's probably not my my favorite version of the movie. I mean, Claude Rains is great in just about anything that you put him in. But I think having Chaney in that role would have made the movie a little bit darker. And to me, that's kind of what I wanted to see. That was my biggest qualm with the Claude Rains version, because I felt like it was a little too bright. Of course, I you know I say that it's about a guy who gets disfigured with an acid spill and then goes on a killing spree, but still not dark enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. 
So I think uh, I think Junior would have added an extra layer of sympathy for the character, uh, a much deeper sympathy. Um, I think it would have put the movie over a little bit more for me. Okay. Oh, card number three. Who's your favorite actress to have appeared in a Hammer film? Man, okay, so uh, our friend Josh Kennedy, uh-huh. his Hammer crush is uh, uh, Martina Bestwick. Mm-hmm. Mine has always been Veronica Carlson. So okay. I'm super jealous of him that he got to make a movie with both of those ladies. <laughs> I say that because, and I love Carolyn Monroe. Uh, I think she's wonderful. She was especially great in uh, Captain Cronus, Vampire Hunter. But to me, uh, Dracula uh, has risen from the grave. It might be my favorite Hammer Dracula film. Um, And I really loved her in that. She was, I remember having a, a huge crush on her when I was a little kid, thinking she was so pretty. And her acting was great. She did a tremendous job in that film. She did a really great job in the Frankenstein film that she was in. I think it was Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, if memory serves me correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, She did a heck of a job. Because I know that that scene with her and Peter Cushing, that must have been very hard emotionally for both of them. Because I know how, how much of a gentleman Peter Cushing was. And I want to say that I've heard stories that like it was that you know what scene I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. And and they they have talked or Veronica's talked about that in different interviews and at Monster Bash and things like that about how difficult it was for especially for Peter to shoot mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And uh, I I understand it's it's a pretty rough scene. But yeah, Veronica was always uh, always the one that uh, stood out for me. So she's my gal. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, card number four. What classic monster movie that never had a sequel should have had one? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, you know what? And I was thinking about this the other day, and, and it, it kind of slipped my mind. I tell you what, it's a little outside of the universal monster wheelhouse, but I kind of okay. want to see a sequel to the monster of Piedras Blancas. Yes. I think that would be cool. I actually watched that movie not too long ago. Uh, for the first time and man that was a solid picture it really is it really i mean just uh it's very it's hard to believe that this was a b movie it looks like an a like it was shot on an a budget uh the 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 director he did a heck of a job on it the monster effects eh, you know it's a little bit of a knockoff of creature from the black lagoon but even still like it's the best knockoff i've ever seen (laughs) so um (laughs) terrific movie and also i'm a little bit of a glutton for punishment i'd like to see a sequel to uh an ed wood movie (laughs) whichever ones lugosi was in uh sequel to I, any of those three would be great all right <laughs> all right final card favorite boris karloff performance oh man uh i'm gonna disqualify the movies that he did with lugosi okay i want to give karloff his undivided attention because i used to badmouth karloff a lot when i was a kid i don't anymore i love karloff i'll always be a lugosi guy first but karloff is still really great i adore him I'm going to have to say Bride Frankenstein. I love that movie. When I first watched it when I was a kid, I didn't quite appreciate it then. But as I grew older, watching it again and again, I love James Whale's vision. And 
Karloff. Like I, I see why people crowned Karloff the king of horror at that time. In the first film he did, but the second film, just the the evolution of the monster and just you knowing that the the pain that he went through in that makeup and the passion that he brought to the role, he gave it his all and he made us fall in love with a monster, an, an undesirable, as it were. I don't think anybody could have gotten it done the way that he did. A truly masterful performance. It truly is a timeless film. Just all of the nuances and just how Whale took his concept from the first movie and just really made the movie that he wanted to make. They basically just turned him loose and let him make whatever he wanted, and he did. He made this beautiful film. But I'd say, yeah, so I, I'd have to say Bride of Frankenstein. If I put the Lugosi films in, though, I really do enjoy The Body Snatcher. He's just a joy to watch as Gray. He's funny, but he's also just straight terrifying, <laughs> especially when he kills Lugosi towards the yeah. end. Because I love that part where um, Lugosi tells him, I know that you've been killing the bodies and, and selling them off to uh, uh, McFarlane. And Karloff, he almost deadpan. He's just like, so nobody knows you're coming here, right? Karloff was very lucky. He made a lot of great films outside of the genre. But for me, like my favorite always, I think it'll always be Bride of Frankenstein just because it's a beautifully shot film. And his performance, as great as it is, it's just one part of a, I guess you could say like a beautiful mosaic of horror. The art direction's great. I know that you you kind of have your issues here and there, or you said that she kind of grew on you. I've always loved Una O'Connor. <laughs> oh, she has grown on me. I'm I'm totally on board with Una. But I under, also understand like why it took so long to get there because it can be a little bit much. But I I adore her. I love whale, how whale. I, I know it's been talked about a million times before, but lacing the horror with uh, laughter. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that that's also why Bride of Frankenstein was such a great movie, why it was superior to the first one, because uh, there were parts of it that were just laugh out loud funny. Not just Una O'Connor, but because the stuff with Dwight Fry is pretty funny too, I think. So, yes. Right on. So, just pin me down on Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> Fair enough. Will do. All right, well, that was the Classic Five. I think you survived. Good. <laughs> I felt like that was that was a heck of a workout. <laughs> ah, no, nah, it's fun. Uh, you know, like I said, I love doing this. I love chatting with, with monster kids. I love talking about this stuff with people and, you know, having new people to talk about this stuff with. Like, you've never been on the show before. You know, to have somebody brand new on the show to talk about this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just incredibly fulfilling for me i think the listeners will dig it too so awesome but as much as i love just kind of chatting about random monster kid stuff we're actually getting together today to talk about a particular film that i had seen previously to us deciding to talk about this one you actually brought this one to the table i'm talking about a movie that's had by my count at least three different titles <laughs> over yeah. the years uh two different release dates because it was released in the uk or in england in 1952 but then here in the states in 1963 uh, the movie is known as mother riley meets the vampire vampire over london or if you want to get a theme song stuck in your head my son the vampire and, <laughs> that's a yeah. theme song though <laughs> 
you know, it's one of those things I, and I knew it when I put it in this afternoon, because I watched it right before we started recording uh, to refresh my memory. I knew that song was coming, but even then, man, it just hit me. And it's like, I, I know. And this song's going to be in my head for days now. That song has probably been stuck in my head for like 15 years. <laughs> Cause I watched it. Uh, I got the movie. I was prepping for a field trip up in New York and I knew that I needed movies to watch on the way up there. And it happened to be on sale. Uh, it was a double feature of that and bucket of blood. And, uh, I bought it and man, um, I, I've heard about this movie, but I never, I never actually watched it, but I watched it and I loved it when I was in middle school. I enjoy British humor. So it was in a weird way. Uh, it was like a Monty Python esque version of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs> if we're going to be crude, the movie is basically a knockoff of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. But I don't care. To me, it's one of Lugosi's funnest movies. I don't know how it would rank in terms of one of his best movies, but it's still a lot of fun to watch, even after all this time. When I first saw this, I, I didn't really know what I was in for. Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad I watched it. I mean, don't get me wrong. And I, and I enjoyed it okay. It wasn't one that I was like, okay, that's my favorite Lugosi film. Mm-hmm. But having watched it again this afternoon, I remembered some of the things that I really liked about this movie. And the biggest thing for me is that it really showed that despite what some of the popular culture might have you believe, or even see portrayed in the movie, Ed Wood, Lugosi could do comedy. Mm -hmm. Lugosi could hold his own against a comic. There are a couple of scenes in this film where he is holding his own against mother Riley doing what he needs to do to get a laugh, but still portray a sense of dread. He knew what he was doing. He was a good actor and, and he doesn't get enough credit. Absolutely. And on top of that, like that movie was proof that he could actually, even in an older age, he could still carry a film and carry it. Well, mm-hmm. the comedy aspects aside, which he, I feel like I agree with you hundred percent. He does a great job with the comedy. Like, He's just he's Lugosi doing his thing and it's wonderful to watch. And even though maybe this isn't the greatest script that he's ever worked with and maybe it's not on par with uh, the classics that he made in the 30s or even, you know, Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein, he is still giving a heck of a performance. It's yes. fascinating to watch and you're thankful that it's him in it because Maybe it wouldn't have turned out as wonderful as it did without a minute. And of course, you know, you can say that about a lot of the movies that he was in, but I think you said it in an episode, I think you said it many times, but there's really no such thing as a bad Lugosi film. Right. Um, There are some that are better than others, but when you have Lugosi in a movie, you're going to get your money's worth because that's what he did in every film. He brought 120% and it's no different in this movie. And it's kind of cool to see him sort of play a, although the film set, it kind of says that he's not really a vampire. It's cool to see him don the cape again. So it's so much fun. Yeah. It's great to see him doing this kind of a role and whether he was having a good time or not, appearing to have a good time on screen and allowing us to have fun with him. And I find that interesting because I feel like the odds were kind of stacked against this movie to begin with and not because of Lugosi. Lugosi kind of 
had to take this movie, and we can talk a little bit about that, but this is the last of a long-running series of films, the Mother Riley films. Mm -hmm. This is the very final one. The films had kind of run their course. Mm -hmm. The man who played Mother Riley, he's played by a man, or she's played by a man, Arthur Lucan. This is the first film that he did without his partner, who also appeared in the films with him as Mother Riley's daughter. So, I mean, there there are a lot of things kind of stacked against this film to begin with. Kind of uh, piggybacking off of that, the Mother Riley film were so popular in England. I believe it was the 1943 uh, Motion Picture Herald. Uh, they said that uh, the Mother Riley series was the sixth biggest box office draw in England. So he was a huge star. He basically started out doing the Mother Riley act in uh, music halls and in theaters. And like you said, he had a partner. I believe her name was Kitty McShane. Mm-hmm. And that was actually his wife. Right. In real life, it was his wife, but right. in the films... It was his daughter. I think she still went by Kitty, didn't she? I have to admit, I've never seen any of the other movies, oh, so well, I don't know. Well, I have, I, neither have I. I don't... Um, I mean, granted, I haven't gone out to look for any of them, but I'm not sure how many of them are actually still around. I believe that right around the time that they started making My Son the Vampire, I think that they had separated... Or they, or they had gone through the divorce, and then mm-hmm. uh, Arthur Lucan, the actor who played um, Mother Riley, he didn't live too much longer after this film. I think he died within a year because his health was waning pretty bad. And actually, a lot of the the physical stunts that were done in it, um, I looked this up. His stunt double was a guy named Roy Rowland, and Roy would actually go on to play Mother Riley in a uh, revival in the 1980s. Oh, okay. Yeah. But uh, Roy was also a friend of his, so he uh, he did a lot of the, the physical gags because uh, Arthur was in poor health uh, during the making of that film. I didn't know any of that. I didn't know it had been revived or anything. And it's part of the reason why the movie had a different title when it was released over here because I don't think the Mother Riley films were really a thing no. here in the U.S. So giving it the alternate titles and then you have the opportunity to have that theme song get stuck in your head uh, with the alternate title as well. Technically, the movie had four titles. Oh, okay. What was the what was the other one? To recap, Mother Riley Meets the Vampire, My Son the Vampire, Vampire Over London. They were actually going to call them, instead of My Son the Vampire, they were actually going to call it Carry On My Vampire. Oh, that's right. I did read about that. But, yeah. But they got the company... I think it was called Anglo Amalgamated. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what company they were, uh, but they sued the production company. So they decided to uh, change the name. So they called it My Son the Vampire. And that's also where they got the Alan Sherman theme song. Because I think what Sherman did, he had another song that was very similar to My Son the Vampire, but then he redid it. Uh, he re recorded the song as My Son the Vampire. Right. For the opening for that movie, which, like you pointed out, it didn't the film wasn't actually released in America until 1963. It kind of shows you how well it did in England, which is a very nice way of saying that it did not do very well at all. Right. Exactly. I kind of want to mention how Lugosi got into this movie. Oh, I think that's a fascinating aspect of it. Sure. I do too, because I I kind of mentioned to you before we started recording, this could totally be a movie, I think. Mm -hmm. I would pay money to see this. But basically what was going on in the early 50s, Lugosi was was kind of having trouble uh, finding work. And 
At the time, he was good friends with filmmaker Richard Gordon. Richard was also sort of acting as as his, I think, sort of his unofficial manager uh, at the time. And they tried to get a West End revival done of Dracula around 1951, I believe. And basically, when Lugosi showed up to London, and there's actually like a, a little press newsreel that came out in the around that time announcing Lugosi was coming for a revival, and some British reporters actually interviewed him and stuff like that. But then for some reason, uh, the production fell through and it didn't happen. And Lugosi was broke and he was literally stranded in England. And Richard Gordon basically said, well, you could do this little movie. It's like a Mother Riley meets a vampire movie. I mean, we'll pay you $5,000, which is actually the sum that he was paid at the time. And of course, in traditional Lugosi fashion... He didn't turn it down, so he he did the movie, and I think I think I remember reading production was four weeks. Then uh, he made the movie, he got paid, and he went he made his way back to the United States. <laughs> That's pretty much the story. There there are some fascinating books out there that recount what happened with well the count with Bela when he went overseas. Uh, there there was. The implied expectation that he was going to just be the next big thing to come over and Dracula was going to be revived and all this. And it just didn't quite work out. And that seems to be the story of Lugosi's life, especially in the later years, that a lot of these things just didn't work out for whatever reason. And, and that's a whole different episode or two or ten that we could do because there's so much about Lugosi's life that, man, I really wish it could have worked out better for him. Well, same here. I've read several books on Lugosi. I've watched several uh you know, little documentaries about the last days. And even after all this time, it's still really hard to talk about. And you kind of don't want to talk about it, but you kind of have to because it's sort of important to mention because unfortunately it's kind of a big part. It's a cautionary tale in some ways. And it's also a tale of the, the blessing and curse of fame, as it were. But but anyway, we, we don't have to go into that, but you know what I mean? There's... Um, sure. But it is hard. I mean, his story, if I'm not mistaken, like at some point it was like ranked right up there with like Marilyn Monroe as like one of the top tragedies in Hollywood history. It was just mm. the, the last years of his life and just how how unfortunate, how sad it was. He deserved better for sure. And, and yeah, that that's a whole different thing. But that's not what this movie's about. This movie's about trying to make you laugh. Right. And, <laughs> so and, and so I'll try to kind of bring things back up a little bit. Right. Well, on a lighter note, I'd like to think that he's looking down on us and smiling, knowing that even after all these years, not only do people remember him and still talk about him, that his movies have pro- in a lot of ways have become more popular now, over 60 years after he's passed away than they were when he was alive. So I, I think that's really cool. And like you said, yeah, back to the more cheerful subject matter, this crazy romp about an Irish charwoman uh, encountering the greatest uh, vampire of our time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I still quote this movie. I, I just I, really. Oh, yeah. Like there's a lot of great one liners. Uh, I love where the intoxicated gentleman in the evening clothes and the top hat. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think he's probably my favorite side character because I love towards the end of the movie where he walks into the police station and he's like, yes, we're here to uh, report the, the, the theft of our car. And he just takes out a giant bottle of gin and uncorks it. His wife looks at him and is like, Humphrey, you can't drink that here. Well, I'm going to bloody well try. Whack <laughs> Just tosses it back. This is that and just the exchange where, and that's what I, I think that's probably my favorite thing about this movie is there is a, oh, we have to explain this because if, if we don't, then people are going to be totally lost. So Lugosi's character is Von Heusen, also known as the vampire. He's basically convinced his henchmen that he is a centuries old vampire, but he also dabbles in mad science. And he has this uh, grandiose plan of conquering the world by creating an army of robots. So far, so he's- it's Lagosi's greatest hits right there. Right. <laughs> it, it really is, which is another delight about this movie. Not to cut you off, but I mean, really, that's what this is. You take every iconic Lagosiism and mix it all up, and you get Van Hussen. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to use that someday. Bella Lugosi's classic hits. Um, <laughs> So he creates a robot, and what happens is the robot is literally being mailed through the British Postal Service, and it happens to be on the same truck as a bunch of just random knickknacks that are being sent to Mother Riley, who is supposed to be inheriting her uncle's fortune because he passed away, and there's some sailors who are on the truck hitching a ride who just get bored. And for whatever reason, they decide to take off the postal stickers and start playing uh, card games with them. And then they can't remember which ones they ripped off of which crate. So apparently they put the wrong postal sticker on the wrong crate. So the robot gets sent to Mother Riley's house and the the knickknacks get sent to the vampire. And there's this great reaction when Lugosi opens the crate and he takes a banjo out and a bed warmer and I guess like some giant kettle thing. It actually kind of looked like a snare drum a little bit. And he's just looking around like, what is happening? Have I gone insane? <laughs> <laughs> and then Mother Riley gets the big crate, which, oh my gosh, just the insanity of... That whole of of the of the crate being unloaded into Mother Riley's shop and just all of the madness going on with her landlord demanding payment and then her customers needing <laughs> their stuff. And then this little kid who's running around causing mischief, who is basically responsible for the giant uh, crate being launched through the store window of Mother Riley's store. And then they finally get the crate upstairs not before they rip down the banister in order to make room, more room for it. And while all this is going, they are just chit-chattering about a, a million different things. They finally get the crate into Mother Riley's upstairs room. They open it. It's a radioactive robot. And for whatever reason, nobody seems to be that bothered by it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Mother Riley thinks that it's um, her Uncle Jeremiah and as she put it, they've canned him. <laughs> and there's this great line where he's getting the robot is getting like radio frequencies 
And so he's basically like sputtering out BBC news reports. And the landlord keeps throwing like a bunch of insults at Mother Riley. <laughs> and Mother Riley just looks down at the robot like, can you believe what he just said to me? He constantly kicking me when I'm in the midst of me sorrows. <laughs> It's just this stupid thing. And it gets me every time. And I really noticed it the the last time that I watched it because I'm like, these people don't realize, they have no sense of what's actually going on. Well, and in the middle of, of like like you said, all this other stuff is going on with the landlord and the, the customers and the kid knocking over the soup cans and randomly a little musical number just pops in. Oh, God. Where she starts best. singing about shush, shush, no, no, whatever. Oh, yeah, and, what, what? And the weirdest thing is like it's the only musical number in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, and just, it makes me wonder if this is something that appear that happens in other Mother Riley films or not. I, I don't know, but... <laughs> maybe. I, I don't know. I, part of me kind of wonders if maybe maybe they were hoping that it, this would be like almost like a musical, but then it kind of fell through, maybe partly because of Arthur Lucan's health or Lugosi didn't... Well, I think Lugosi probably would have done a musical anyway, Um, I don't know. It's kind of interesting because it's just there and it's just kind of this weird part of the movie that never gets brought up again. It is so bizarre. Just kind of happens out of the blue. Right. So weird. But I guess if you were going to have just a random musical number, this would be the kind of movie to have it. (laughs) Oh, sure. Yeah. The thing is, it's so oddly placed, but yet it is so part of the film. Oh, yeah. Of course it it happens. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that happens all the time here. Oh, yeah, we just do <laughs> random musical numbers. Like, you don't do it at your place? That's weird. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> oh, boy. Nobody seems bothered at all by the presence of this thing. Just, it's it's there. It's something to bounce one-liners off of. <laughs> right, and, and the weirdest thing is, like, it's almost... Like, in the vampire's lair, things seem to be a little bit more normal over there than they do in Mother Riley's store. <laughs> right? It's like, hey, I'm a, I'm a supervillain, and I'm trying to take over the world, and we have hostage. Like, it's pretty simple. <laughs> right. So, the vampire's been kidnapping. You know, there are people disappearing. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, he's trying to figure out where some uranium is because he wants to build more robots. Is that... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's trying to build. I think he said that he wanted to build fifty thousand. Which, if you ask me, that's kind of overkill. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, you can probably get by with like a hundred, <laughs> especially but if they're radioactive. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're radioactive. Like nobody's going to mess with you. <laughs> it's like saying you want five Godzillas. <laughs> yeah, like like really, do you need more than one? Right. Um, Once enough. Yeah, he's trying to build fifty thousand. He's trying to get that uranium deposit. So in the beginning of the movie, his henchman kidnapped this. Uh, she's a dignitary. She's the I think she's the daughter of she's supposed to be the daughter of the Italian ambassador or something like that. Um, <laughs> but she had her name is uh, Julia Loretti and uh, she is carrying the uranium deposit. But when they kidnap her, she doesn't actually have it on her. So they keep her to basically do uh, enhanced interrogation. And, of course, in classic Lugosi fashion, it's like some weird electricity thing with a Tesla coil. So, <laughs> Sure. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I love when they pick her up off the boat. Her boyfriend, her beau, meets her there, and he's going to give her a ride to wherever. But hold on a second. I need to go do something. And he takes off, and then Lugosi's people 
intercept her mm-hmm. and introduce and go, oh, we've got a car for you. It's all been taken care of. And I'm not doing it with an accent, but in the film mm-hmm. it's done with an accent. And when she questions who these people are, well, we're with the foreign service. Well, I don't remember them having accents. Well, it is mm-hmm. foreign, ma'am. So it's like, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. That works. <laughs> She's like, all right, I'll, I'll get in the car with this stranger. Why not? <laughs> It's just kind of a delightful you know, romp almost. I almost preferred some of the stuff that happened without Mother Riley. I mean, mm. all of Lugosi's crew are just so weird and and interesting and bizarre, and I'd hang out with them any day. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know uh, what that says about me, but... <laughs> Hitchcock, the little guy with the glasses who has the funny laugh. The laugh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I caught it the other day when I was rewatching it. When Bogosi's making his great speech, mm-hmm. you know, about, you know, this, we have created no Frankenstein of the flesh, but this God of man. And while he's giving this speech, there's this shot of Anton, who is the guy you referred to, the, the, the guy who gave that line about, the, you know, well, it is foreign. And then yeah. the other henchman who, kind of looks like this country bumpkin. I think his name is Grimsby or something like that. But there's just this great moment where like Anton is just staring at Lugosi and just is giving him this, you know, that profound like, you know, yes, I'm living in this momentous uh, moment in history. And Grimsby's just smiling. And then they just kind of look at each other like, what? <laughs> they give each other this great look as if like... <laughs> Grimsby was like, oh, I oh, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be laughing at this. <laughs> and then Anton's like, dude, why are you laughing? <laughs> so it's, <sighs> yeah, it's a motley crew for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, for sure. And you know, it's one of the reasons why I love it. It's, it's not just a bunch of guys running around doing pratfalls or whatever. They're all so uniquely different and funny and weird and Mother Riley- gets involved with them. Uh, I mentioned earlier that this movie proves that Lugosi could do comedy. Mm -hmm. There is a scene where Mother Riley is sitting down and Lugosi as uh, Von Hausen is sitting next to her and he's getting closer to her and she's scooting away. And it's just very well choreographed. They're sitting, they both get up and scoot over a little bit down the couch and they continue to talk. Lugosi maybe tries to hold her hand or puts his hand out and she accidentally touches his hand and freaks out and she gets up again and he matches the movement and it's it's a really neat, clever scene, I feel like. Yes. That culminates in getting to the end of the couch and Mother Riley falling on the floor, which again is amusing. But that whole sequence is just so well done and well paced and really, like I said, it just shows that Lugosi can pull it off. I'm tired of hearing all the, he couldn't do comedy. This movie proved it. I'm glad you brought that scene up. He even had some good one-liners in there. Yes. That particular scene you're talking about, she's looking at that really weird portrait on the mantle of like, it's like half Lugosi, half bat. And she's like trying to imitate the bat. And he asks her, he's like, do you like bats? And she's like, no, no. They they send cold shivers down my spine. And then he's like, oh, that's a pity. He was my brother. (laughs) (laughs) It's just amazing. One of the things that really caught my attention about this movie are some of the names of the people involved behind the camera. So first of all, it's directed by John Gilling, who 
I know from Hammer. Yeah. He did some incredible work for Hammer, including, I believe, Plague of the Zombies, didn't he? Yeah, he did Plague of the Zombies, The Reptile, Shadow of the Cat, and The Mummy Shroud, which I uh, I believe I've seen that one. I love The Plague of the Zombies. And I, it's funny because I keep talking about pre-Romero zombies with people lately here on the show. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced that if Night of the Living Dead did not come out and do as well as it did, Hammer would have made another zombie movie of some sort. Unfortunately, Plague of the Zombies is the only zombie movie they ever did, and it is solid. It is such a good movie. I love it. And John Gilling directed it, and he directed a handful of other things for the UK horror scene, The Flesh and the Fiends with Peter Cushing, for example. Mm -hmm. But another name that I didn't realize was attached to this until the showing or the viewing that I had of it today, Bernard Robinson did the set design? The guy who designed Dracula's Castle and Frankenstein's Lab for Hammer did the art direction on this, or the art design on this. Oh. Holy, what? I had no idea. Well, you got to start somewhere, Derek. <laughs> well, I mean, he started with Hammer and went here. I, I don't yeah. know what the progression was. It's a strange detour. <laughs> but when I saw that name on the screen, I, it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that it was bad. The production design was bad in this movie. I'm not saying that at all. It's just so not the gothic Hammer horror that we know him for. Speaking of production value, I don't know... So I, I've had a DVD copy of it, and I'm not entirely sure that the transfer is the best. There's some audio issues. I don't know if that's a transfer thing or if that would have been just how the movie was – I don't want to say how the movie was cut. Uh, I don't know, but like I, I was kind of curious to see how you watched it to, to see if there was kind of a, a difference in quality. I have it on DVD, but I couldn't tell you what company put it out. Okay. But it does have the song. And, you know, I do notice some bits here and there that are a little more washed out, and the sound probably could be tweaked here and there. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, that again, that's one of those things that you get. It comes with the territory of loving these movies, right? Sure. They can't all be restored and upconverted to Blu-ray the way Universal did with Dracula. Mm-hmm. I, I wish they could. I wish it was an easier process than it is, and it costs a lot less money because I would love to have some of these things in a nice restored version, but you know, it is what it is. Like I said, it comes with the territory and I didn't really notice a lot of problems with it. It seemed to me on my end, there were some parts where the music was kind of overpowering over Mm. some of the dialogue. I'm not trying to be nitpicking or anything like that, Sure, but you know, the part towards the end where mother Riley and um, actually, I think the name of the maid is Kitty. The one who's married to the uh, to the cop. Oh, okay. When they're heading down the hallway and they're talking, and then um, Mother Riley accidentally gets hooked up on that rope. Yeah. It that part, like it was to me, like a lot of the dialogue got drowned out. Like the music hmm. was so. Now, granted, that may have been on purpose because that was supposed to be like a like her voice got cut off anyway because you know the rope caught, caught her but i felt but little instances like that i just noticed it you know kind of sprinkled in the movie where some of the dialogue is kind of lost over the music or some of the editing cuts were just a little too abrupt but you know i'm kind of talking shop or like you said it doesn't really matter like it's just transferring this stuff from film onto DVD. For some of these movies, it's it's not so easy. So we're just right. fortunate to have a copy of these movies anyway. And it's not enough for me not to enjoy the movie. Sure, sure. And I don't remember a lot of problems like that in my copy. I mean, I know I will be watching this again at some point. So next time I do, I'll, I'll pay attention to that. But it's not something I really 
noticed, and I did some checking while we were talking about this. I think the copy that I have is from Image Entertainment. Uh, It's packaged as My Son the Vampire. Now, when I go to the main website I go to when I'm researching this kind of stuff, which is dvdcompare.net, where you can type in the name of the movie, it'll tell you all the different releases it's had for the most part. And this lists a few other titles as well for this movie. (laughs) So we had uh, Mother Riley Runs Riot, The Robot and the Vampire, The Vampire and the Robot, and Dracula's Desire. Oh, uh, okay. So I'm, if it was called Dracula's Desire, I would have been very disappointed. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it would have worked nearly as well. <laughs> Talk about a letdown. Right? Yeah, no, it would not worked. Would not have worked nearly as well uh, with that. I think the titles that we have, you know, My Son the Vampire, yeah, it was because it was a play off of the, uh, the popular song at the time. But I'm okay with that. And even putting the Mother Riley thing on it, because I, I get it. You know, I know the behind the scenes. But yeah, Dracula's Desire, that's a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> That one's a stretch. Which, you know, I, I know it's kind of random, but it just popped into my head. So, like you, I'm a big fan of Brides of Dracula. Mm-hmm. But part of me does wish that maybe the movie wasn't called Brides of Dracula. But saying that now, like, now that I say that out loud, it's a, that's kind of a stretch. Because, like, you know, the whole story that he was kind of made into a vampire by Dracula. Or, or at least that's what we think. And Van Helsing's still in there, so it still kind of fits. I think Dracula's desire attached to my son, the vampire though, that would have been a bigger, (laughs) yeah, that just would have been no, (laughs) a a much harder sell, a much harder sell. (laughs) There are some physical things that happen in this that obviously Arthur Lucan didn't do. And we talked a little bit about that, that we had an understudy, a stuntman, whoever doing some of the more physical uh, comedy. There's a bit where uh, Riley jumps through a window head first Mm -hmm. And then the film reverses and she comes back in and then says something else and then goes back through again, uh, which there's some fourth wall things that happen in the movie, too. I mean, it's just that kind of madcap kind of craziness through the whole movie. As if this movie couldn't be more insane. <laughs> right. You have to have Mother Riley actri- actually sort of address the audience. Well, you know, you have that part and then like at the very the very end, too, is just kind of weird. It's just sort of this abrupt, like, jack-in-the-box thing. <laughs> it really does end oddly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really weird ending. Like, you basically have, like, the vampire and his henchmen in a shootout with the police on the ship. And then Mother Riley trying to get to the scene, you know, and I guess sort of be the hero or at least have some, you know, partial credit to getting the bad guy but like she tries to get there on car and the car wrecks and then there's a couple of steps in between but like basically she ends up on a bicycle and she's just lance armstronging the thing all the way to the ship (laughs) she completely misses it and like wrecks the bike and basically shoots into the i guess i'm assuming the river thames and just falls in Somebody throws a little lifesaver. She pops through the hole and says, this is the end. And then that's the end of the movie. Well, and the lifesaver itself has the words, this is the end, written, printed on it. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, so we had that break in the fourth wall, the reversal. There's the part where she's like, 
at the top of the window talking to Miss Loretti, and Miss Loretti is screaming like, please help, help. Don't worry. I'll be back. I'll be back quicker than a, what does he say, a, a shaking of a lamb's coat? Yeah, something like that. And as somebody who's facing impending death, that has got to be the most infuriating thing <laughs> to, to look at. Because you're just like, I don't care about a lamb's coat. Just get down here and save me, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If you can't tell listeners, this movie makes us laugh. It brings us a lot of joy. And if you haven't seen the movie, I know it's kind of hard to say, oh, we spoiled it because it's just kind of a lighthearted comedy. But yeah. there are a, a number of things that we have not talked about. And I don't really want to talk about because I want listeners to check it mm-hmm. out. Your expectations, you know, this isn't Dracula. This isn't mm-hmm. Return of the Vampire. This isn't Abbott and Costello Frankenstein. It's a much lower production project. And it's a different style of comedy than what we might have seen Lugosi try to do here in the States. But it's so successful. And you're hearing Taylor laugh. I'm putting myself on mute as I'm laughing over what he's saying. Because it's just a movie that brings us so much joy. I had a blast watching it. I can't recommend this one enough. Especially if you're a fan of Lugosi. And, and like I said, like, I still quote this movie all the time, like on a daily basis. One of my favorite things to say is uh, put that in your smoke and pipe it. That's uh, right. <laughs> that she, she said that. I, I love this movie. It's it's so much fun. Oh, real quick. It was on my mind earlier. We have to talk about it because it, it wouldn't be an MKR episode if it wasn't discussed. Did you like the score? <laughs> I knew that was going to come. <laughs> oh. I don't remember it really standing out all that much to me. I mean, I liked it. And I think, especially towards the end, when everything's starting to wrap up, uh, it really does a good job of kind of winding you up. My favorite, for some reason, my favorite, other than the theme song, my favorite piece of music in that movie is uh, right before we meet Mother Riley in the shop. And then like you hear basically like the duck horns uh, of them like chattering back and forth. Yes, that, that was know, a really That is the soundtrack yeah. of my life. Uh, I, I get up in the morning and <laughs> that's the music that's playing in my head and I'm just jolly and jumping and ready to go. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's like, you know, like in uh, the Charlie Brown cartoons, whenever you hear an adult talking, you have that. Wah, wah, wah. Mm-hmm. Well, in this movie, whenever we have some characters talking in the background, maybe through a window or something, they're introduced with that. Wah, 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 wah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun. It's so great. A lot of different kinds of music interludes. You've got like almost like Latin flamenco music in there, thrown in there. It's a rare, mm-hmm. it's an interesting hodgepodge. <laughs> and it's also like, you know, generic news music and all that stuff. But I say all that to say, uh, like you said, like this movie, it really is a lot of fun. Lugosi's given it his all. Uh, he makes the movie worth watching. And the other actors do too. Their comedic timing is superb. If you're a fan of British humor, I, I think that this is a movie for you. I agree. I agree. I think it's something that will be a pleasant surprise to those of you who haven't seen it yet. Uh, and, and if you have seen it, watch it again anyway, because some of the things happen so quickly, you're bound to have missed something at some point. Uh, or you might find something else that you've already seen before and now enjoy it in a different way. I, this time around, I was very taken with the earnestness with which the, the kidnappee's boyfriend Bo, spouse, whatever he is, is trying to find her and is snooping around and sneaking around despite getting hit over the head every 15 minutes with a flashlight and getting knocked out. That poor guy. Like, I know. 
the, that he had to have walked away from that whole situation with brain damage. <laughs> it just and the, the things that he was hit with are just absurd. <laughs> uh huh. It just seems to escalate more and it more did. and more. It's worse. Yeah. <laughs> I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes where people can go to Amazon and pick up a copy of this if it's currently in print, uh, so you can get your hands on it. And if it is still out there by Image Entertainment, you know it's not going to be all that expensive. So it's definitely going to be worth the money. And I am so happy that we had an opportunity to talk about this movie and to finally have you on the show, man. Oh, Derek, seriously, I, um, I, I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. Um, and, and I'm so glad that we were able to make it happen. I really mean this. Like I, I look up to you and I, I've been listening to monster kid radio for a while. I, I love the conversations that you have and I've always kind of listened for a while, like, you know, man, if I could just get on there and, and talk monster movies, like, that'd be like the best day ever. And it was, because this, this was so much fun. And I love what you do with Monster Kid Radio. It's a great show. And I appreciate you being you and doing what you do, because you bring a lot of people joy. And you've certainly brought a lot of happiness to my life. So uh, for that, my friend, I, I can't thank you more than more than I am right now. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say to that other than uh, this seems to be a trend lately with people that are coming on the show. For the record, listeners, any potential future guests, you don't have to say that to get on the show. <laughs> no. But it helps. Was, no, no, I'm just <laughs> This was not a paid advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> but I do appreciate it. Uh, I love doing it. And I say this at the end of every episode. I'd be sitting around talking about monster movies with anybody who cared to listen or would be within you know, listening range of me. So to have this outlet that people like you and the listeners have helped to build over the years for me to do this just means a lot. So thank you. And I wish you the best with everything you've got going on. The trauma deal is incredible. I can't wait to hear what comes next from you, man. I'm literally at a loss for words just because I'm, I'm so happy to be here to talk with you about the things that we love most. And I appreciate that. And I hope we get to do this again sometime. Definitely. Definitely. For sure. Yeah. We're, we're going to make it happen and we're not going <laughs> to wait so long. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> no, just, Hey, whenever. And, and next time, uh, if you want to pick the movie, uh, I'm all ears. And if it's something <laughs> I haven't seen, that's good too. Cause, uh, I need a little bit more culture in my life. <laughs> this is culture listeners here. It's culture. It's culture of the highest order. Look up Count Drahoon on your favorite search engine, and you're going to find his website, his Facebook page, his Instagram, his Twitter. He's all over the place. He's easy to find, but I'll make sure there are links in the show notes as well if you'd rather just click through from monsterkidradio.net. I'm really excited for his deal with Troma. I think that's really cool. I know Troma is known for the, the schlocky cult movies, you know, Toxic Avenger and, yeah, Tromeo and Juliet, all of those. I get it. But Lloyd Kaufman is a fan of film. Last I heard, Troma actually owns the Roan Group, and the Roan Group has one of the best transfers and restorations of the original White Zombie. So, I mean, he really is a film fan, not just the stuff that makes money. Not that there's anything wrong with making money, just saying. I'm really excited that Count Rahoon's style of horror and storytelling is going to be shown on the Troma streaming platform. That's so cool. Taylor is working on a number of projects right now. 
I'm hoping I can be involved with some things down the line. We've talked a little bit about it, but then I get busy and then I don't contact him. And then, yeah, it's, it's all on me, really. I will be getting a hold of him. But in the meantime, check out Count Drahoon. Taylor, thanks, man, for being on the show. Oh. Horror. No! Horror. Stop it! Horror. <laughs> the Masters of Horror present the masterpieces of screen horror from 20th Century Fox, Frankenstein Created Woman, and The Mummy Shroud. Frankenstein, now he has created his most diabolical horror. The ultimate in evil, a beautiful woman with the soul of the devil. Then, beware the beat of the cloth-wrapped feet. Beware the mummy shroud. The ultimate in evil, the absolute in terror from the Shockmasters. Together in the same double shock show, Frankenstein Created Woman and the Mummy Shroud in gripping, gripping color. Don't look. Shield your eyes. <laughs> For on the day you look upon them, you will surely die. House of the Gorgon. Why don't you let us alone? Get back on your train and leave us alone! Rumors circling around. Uh, mysterious happenings at night. Uh, strange noises emanating from the dark. Leave Karlstadt. Leave now and never come back. Stay away from them. They mean you great harm. Starring Caroline Monroe as the Baroness. What was the sinister secret she hid beneath her dark spectacles? Martine Beswick as her sister Uriel, malevolent and evil. You would sacrifice all that we've done merely to quench your innate desire oh, for violence. Oh, what if I did? Veronica Carlson as Anna, the one woman in the village of Karlstadt willing to stand against these angels of death. I can fight you. We can fight you. Christopher Neem as Llewellyn, a man of faith locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. If we leave them alone, maybe they'll leave us alone. Also starring Joshua Kennedy as the mysterious Dr. Pritchard. And introducing Georgina Dugdale, Gooey Film's latest star discovery, the Gorgon's most beautiful victim. See all of this and more when you visit the House of the Gorgon. We cast you out, every unclean spirit, every satanic power, in the name and by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can transplant his brain. If I don't, it'll die through lack of oxygen. In his nightmare mind, one more horror, one last horrendous act. Frankenstein must be destroyed. For God's sake, 
must be destroyed. Peter Cushing, Veronica Carlson. Frankenstein must be destroyed. This picture has been rated M, suggested for mature audiences. I don't do partners. Mark Temple eyed the film student behind the video camera. And I don't do media. Nick Franklin glanced over his shoulder at Josh, the sideburned third-year film student from Bozeman. He's not recording. You'd see that red blinking light. He looked back at Mark and brought his cup of coffee to his lips. He paused and smiled. And the lens cap would be off. Mark pushed his chair away from the dinette table. Damn it, Nick, I'm done. You don't have a job for me here. I have one lined up in Washington, and I already missed my train thanks to you. Nick finished his coffee, and despite his missing his first two fingers of his right hand, delicately set it down on the tabletop. I already told you I'd pay you if I could. But it's not in your budget. It's not good business. Mark shook his head. How is it good business to not get paid for my services? Those were the first few paragraphs, granted short paragraphs, of my short story, Are You My Mummy?, which appears in the Mark Temple's Case Files Volume 1 book, Supernatural Solutions. Monster Hunter for Hire is what it's called. And I will be doing a reading from this book. It might be that story or it might be a different one during the Monster Kid Movie Club stream this Saturday. I'm really excited because this Saturday stream is going to be all over the place. We've got me doing a live reading. We have a musical with the Monster of Phantom Lake, the musical from Christopher R. Mim. We also have a music video. I told you I was going to come back to the Spirotones. We are showing one of their music videos, which I think is really fun during the stream as well. And because we had some technical difficulties last week, we will be showing The Flesh and the Fiends in its entirety this time. I promise. I'm not sure what else we're going to sneak in there, but I can't guarantee there will be more than just that. Of course, we'll also have a round of the Classic Five played live on the stream as well. The stream is totally free. The Monster Kid Movie Club can be found at monsterkidmovie.club and starting at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Saturday, the pre-show begins. Around noon, the movies themselves kick in. There is a live chat the whole time, so... If you want to chat it up while you're watching these movies, have conversations with anybody who happens to be in the chat room, have conversations with your fellow monster kids, make some new monster kid friends. That's where you do it. So one time that I'm going to encourage you to talk or chat during a film. This typically runs till about seven or even maybe a tad later in the evening, again, Pacific time, and it's all free. So I'd love to see you there again, reading, music video, musical, some Peter Cushing that you didn't get enough of last week, and a few other surprises, like an opportunity to win a very special prize from Stuffed with Character, which is Tracy Morris's awesome line of stuffed characters from monster movies and comic books. I'm looking forward to this weekend. I hope you are too. And with that, I have to tell you, this is the end of this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. Again, thank you for being here. I really appreciate everybody downloading the show. Speaking of downloading the show, we just found out that we are a podcast that you can now download and listen to through Amazon Music. 
not entirely sure how that happened. I know a while back I applied to have Monster Kid Radio put on Audible. Maybe they just decided to change their mind and put the podcast on Amazon Music instead. But we're there. So look up Monster Kid Radio on Amazon Music. Every episode, at least for the past 100 or so, are available to listen to there. If you are an Amazon user and you listen to the show this way, and there's an opportunity for you to leave an honest review, please feel free to do so. Wherever you download the show, please feel free to leave us an honest review. If you're on Facebook, please find the group. We have an active Monster Kid Radio group on Facebook where conversations are happening all the time. We also have a Monster Kid Radio page where I make announcements about what is coming up, or at least an announcement about the current podcast. We're also on Twitter, so you can find us there as well. Of course, links to all of this are over on our website at monsterkidradio.net where you can find everything else you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes or even while you listen. You're going to want to pay attention to monsterkidradio.net because as I look at the calendar, I realize next week's episode is October 1st. And that's the countdown to Halloween. Okay, honestly, my countdown to Halloween starts on November 1st, but... It's the countdown to Halloween for most of the world, and we're going to be doing a lot to celebrate Halloween this year at Monster Kid Radio because, let's face it, with COVID-19, with all the struggles people are having economically, with the fires in the Pacific Northwest and everything else going on around the world, a lot of Halloween had to be postponed, canceled, or drastically changed. That's not cool. That's our holiday. That's what we live for, man. Halloween yeah, it stays alive in our heart seven days a week, 365. I, I get that, but we want to be able to do Halloween stuff. So coming up over at monsterkidradio.net, we are going to talk a little bit about what we're doing during the entire month of October. I have some pretty big plans about what I would like to do with the stream and the website and the podcast, but I'm hesitant to really tell you what they are right now because I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull them all off. Fortunately, I've got a group of friends that are working with me to make these things happen and yeah, now that I realize that October 1st is next week, I probably need to send some emails out as soon as I'm done putting this episode out. But it's going to be fun, I, I think. During last week's stream, not just on Saturday, but then on the Tuesday Astronomy Club stream as well, where we do classic sci-fi movies, I mentioned a few times that I'm looking for some people to maybe participate in some events in October for the stream. It means what I'm looking for are people who are comfortable appearing on screen, being seen on the Twitch stream, who will be available on whatever day we end up doing this thing. And I don't know when that's going to be yet, but I'll keep you posted. And have access and use Discord. Discord is this combination chat, video, audio, calling program. It's free. It's real easy to use. I've gotten very comfortable with it. So if you have Discord, don't mind appearing on camera. You're going to need a webcam, obviously, a decent webcam, a decent place to film in so that you look good on screen, and a decent microphone because we're going to need to be able to hear you as well. Drop me an email, monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and let me know because I'd like to put something together here sooner rather than later to get those wheels moving and turning. I need some victims or, or participants to help me out. I know I'm intentionally being vague. That's partly because I don't want charges pressed. That's partly because I'm, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen yet. I'm just, just, anyway, I'll make announcements as we go through the month of October and all the other things we've got coming up throughout the month. And of course, Halloween lands on a Saturday this year. And since we do the stream on Saturday as it is, it's going to be a special day. I tell you, I probably will even start the stream early on Halloween day because why not? That's the day. 
That's the day. One more thing about the stream. I'd like to start showing more movies than I have access to. I am hesitant to show movies that are not in the public domain. It's not legal to do so. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want Amazon to come cracking down on us since they own Twitch, that sort of thing. So if you are an independent filmmaker, if you're a filmmaker and you have movies that you'd like to have shown during the Monster Kid Movie Club stream or throughout the month of October, because I'm going to be streaming movies more than just on Saturday because... You know, it's it's October. I'd love to hear from you. Again, the Monster Kid Radio at gmail.com. Email address is how you get a hold of me. Let me know if you have movies, shorts, audio dramas, radio shows, anything that you'd like to have shared with the Monster Kid Movie Club audience. Let me know. Reach out to me. Drop me a line. And we'll start talking. If you're friends with anybody that produces this kind of content, give them my email address, would you? Okay, I know this is all like nebulous. This is what's happening in October. Let's talk about something that's definitely happening in October. The next episode of Monster Kid Radio will feature author Stephen D. Sullivan. It is time to finally do something that we do every year on the podcast that for whatever reason, I have pushed back and pushed back and pushed back again. It is time for the Monster Rally Retro Awards or what we call the rallies. It's a way for us to celebrate the best in genre cinema from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. It's a retro award where we look at the best actors, actresses, movies, monsters, and directors of our favorite monster movies from these particular decades. It's become a tradition that Steve is my co-host, my guest, every time we announce the nominees for the rally. So come back for that. Between now and then, remember, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. The song, Bustin', is copyright 2020, The Spiritones. You can find that song on their album, Sun Worshipper, which you can find at thespiratones.bandcamp.com. Or just follow the link in the show notes. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. I'll see you on Saturday or Tuesday for the sci-fi thing or next week for the rally nominations. Ciao.